Well, hello, everyone. Good morning. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Dakota. I'm one of the pastors here at the Brookside campus. I'm married to Megan. We have two sons, Declan and Theo, and we have been here in Kansas City for just about 10 months now. And we have loved it. We've loved getting to know all of you and getting to know the city that we get to call home for this season. If we haven't gotten the chance to get to know one another yet, just please reach out. I'd love to get coffee or get lunch sometime. And um, I am grateful to be here, to stand opening up the word with all of you. I have a friend out in California uh, who is actually preaching today at his church. And um, he has this thing he likes to say that he doesn't take it lightly. And I, I, I believe that. I don't take it lightly. And I'm humbled every time I get to share with you all what God has been teaching me through this passage and, and what I trust that he's teaching us today. So um, to be frank, this passage has been actually pretty tough to wrestle through this week, uh, but I do, I believe that the Spirit has something that he wants to teach us this morning. So to that end, let me, let me pray uh, for us to hear him speak through his word. So let's pray. Lord, God, you are good. Thank you for your grace, for your goodness to us and um, to your people and uh, to this world that you have made. Um, God, thank you for this day that we can gather together and worship you, um, to hear your word, to hear you speak to us. I just, I pray that your spirit would um, prepare our hearts, would soften our hearts to, to hear you speak. Um, and that we would receive what it is what you want us to hear, um, what, you, what you want us to learn, um, and that we would respond. Um, God, so help us today. Um, we thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So can you think of a time when you just missed something totally obvious? So when, when Megan and I were first starting to talk, uh, I was totally oblivious uh, to be clear, I, I really liked her. I was totally enamored with this young woman who was just on fire for Jesus and deeply loved her friends, and she was funny and talented and clever, and she just really cared for the people and the women in the Bible study that she led. Um, and so uh, we've been talking for a while, and she began dropping hints. And there was one night in particular, we were uh, talking after our weekly meetings, our campus ministries weekly meeting, where we were talking, we were chatting and uh, laughing, and I was super nervous, and so I, I started yawning, which uh, I do, I guess, because I stopped breathing normally, uh, which must have been so confusing to her, right? Uh, and then, and then uh, even so, still at some point, she asked me, well, what are you doing tomorrow? And I respond, nothing. <laughs> nothing. And so she's like, well, I'm not doing anything. And that is a lob, if you've ever heard it, right? Uh, but I was clueless. I thought that there was no way that she could feel the same way back, and so my expectations just blinded me from the reality. I was so focused on trying to get her to like me that I missed the fact that she already did. 
And that's something like what's happening in our passage today, but to an even more extreme extent, right? Imagine wanting something so badly that you spent 38 years trying to get it, and then you get it. Someone comes along and literally with a word gives it to you, and then you reject the person who gave it to you. You miss the giver for the gift. So what we see in this passage. So if you haven't done so yet, I invite you to open up your Bibles uh, to John chapter 5, which in the Pew Bibles is on page 890. Or if you have a smartphone, you can just open that up and open up a browser and you can search John 5, and it should bring up some websites with the text. So in these weeks leading up to Easter, we have been in a series going through the book of John called Word Made Flesh. And we're looking at who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him. And so we've seen along the way that Jesus was declared the word of God, who is God himself, come to dwell among us. And then we've seen Jesus kind of slowly reveal himself. Kind of, he secretly saved a party by making tons of miracle wine. And then he was talking to a confused Jewish leader, Nicodemus and an outcast woman, the Samaritan woman. And then finally, last week, he heals a government official's dying son with no one there to witness it except the official's household staff. And so, as we come here to the end of our passage in verse 17, um, we get Jesus' kind of first fully public declaration of who he is, of his intimate relationship with God, even oneness with God. Jesus says he's working just as the Father is working. And yet, the man who gets healed misses him. The Jewish leaders miss him. They're so focused on getting what they want, on their own kind of cultural expectations, on living life under their own control, that they miss the one who made them, who continually gives them life and breath and everything. And so studying this passage over the past week, couple weeks, um, I just couldn't wrap my head around this man's response to Jesus, right? Here comes Jesus giving the man everything he wanted, healed after 38 long years, and then with no gratitude, no joy, not even really a verbal response, the man turns around and more or less sells Jesus out to to the religious authorities. I just thought that seems confusing. Um, But then I started thinking that we do this too, don't we, in, in some ways? What if, what if this passage actually is more of a warning for us rather than a window into how they, whoever they are, get it wrong? We can look at them and we can say, wow, you missed it. There he was, there was Jesus, God in the flesh, revealing himself right in front of you, and you missed him. How could you do that? If we said this, the irony would be that we'd actually be missing the meaning of the passage entirely. We would miss why Jesus wants us to hear this story. The passage is a warning for us to make sure we don't miss Jesus. Jesus isn't only a miracle worker, a, a good teacher. He's the healer, the maker and the Lord of all creation, and he wants you. So if you only write down one thing today, I hope it's this. Your healer maker, and Lord wants all of you. Don't miss him. 
So today we're going to look at three ways through this passage that it warns us not to miss Jesus. Number one, don't miss your healer because you only wanted to help her. Number two, don't miss your maker because you only wanted someone to blame. And number three, don't miss your Lord because you only wanted a cheerleader. So don't miss your healer because you only wanted a helper. So as we enter here, back into our passage, the world of our, our story, the setting is that Jesus is back in Jerusalem. After being out in Galilee, he's back for some unnamed festival, and he goes directly to this pool by the Sheep Gate called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. And so he goes there and he performs an act of mercy to heal this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. So notice the details that John includes. One of Jesus' original followers who wrote this gospel, he's, um, he's mentioning a specific location, right? The original people who read, the, read this story 2,000 years ago, they would have known where this was. And we also, because of advancement in archaeology, we know where it is, too. We're not reading fanciful stories here, these books and letters in the New Testament. These are historical accounts. They're not merely history, but they're certainly not less than history. These are real places that archaeologists have found and confirmed and that all of John's readers would have known about. So here's a kind of an artistic rendering of what it might have looked like. And so now imagine with me what it would have been like to be this man waiting at the edge of this pool for 38 years, ostracized, isolated, and alone, even while he's surrounded by other sick people, waiting for help. So we're not told explicitly why they're all there, but it seems like there was some belief or superstition that this pool could heal you. So if you notice in your Bible, that uh, you look through the passage and get to verse 3, and then it skips to verse 5, and verse 4 is missing. That's strange, but it's actually because the earliest copies of the gospel don't have that verse. It's only the later, later ones. And this is probably because a scribe was copying these down, and um, those manuscri- manuscripts added later, they added this verse in, kind of to explain why the sick people were there. There's probably a study note, kind of in the margin, talking about this context, and then later copies kind of moved it into the main body. But the note that was kind of added on later says that there was a belief that these waters, when they kind of began to stir up um, without wind, probably because of some source, some underground spring, uh, the people believed that it was an angel touching the water. And so they would hop in, and the first one to get there was healed. And so this is where Jesus goes to these people hoping for healing, and he comes to this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he asks in verse 6, do you want to be healed? What? Isn't, isn't that like why the whole point? Isn't that why everyone is there? Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? So it makes you wonder, is, is there something more to health than being able to stand on your own two feet. So often we ask for help with this or that, and and then we miss out on the deeper healing that God wants for us. 
And actually, this man doesn't even ask Jesus for help, much less ask for the healing that only Jesus can give. It's Jesus who asks him, do you want to be healed? And this is a question for all of us. No matter where we're coming from, Jesus is not only a helper. He is also the healer, and the healing he brings is a whole life kind of healing. So we don't actually get the inner dialogue of this man, but we we see kind of his lackluster response to Jesus, and something is wrong, right? So, So John's actually, he's making a stark contrast between this man's response and the official's response from last week that we read about. So you've, by putting these stories by, side by side, we're actually invited to reflect and to ask ourselves, when we come to Jesus, do we want help with something just to ignore him later? Or do we want him to heal our whole life? Friends, Jesus can only heal your life if you let him into all of it. So where are the nooks and crannies in your life? Maybe especially that inner life of your heart that you've kind of left out of the picture. Kind of like controlling the needs that we project on social media. I'm raising money for a cause. Will you donate? I'm working on building my brand. Will you comment, like, subscribe? We want to control what God helps us with and how he helps us. God, help me walk again. And help me specifically when I get into this water. God, I need help at work. Give me a promotion and take away the colleagues that get on my nerves while you're at it, won't you? God, give me a spouse and give me one who's just like me. Sometimes we we treat prayer like this, like, like an automated answering machine. So for promotion... Press one. For a new house, press two. For fixing my struggling marriage, press three. For being restored to an estranged family member, press four. And then, because these things don't come promptly at the other end of the line, we are discouraged. But what if Jesus has more for us than just to help us? What if, even more so, he wants to use this circumstance in your life to do a healing work in you? What if he wants to use this circumstance in your life to do a healing work in you? This man wanted to have control of how God helped him, and so he missed the healer. In the next few verses, we're going to read on, and we're going to see that the Jewish leaders— they also miss Jesus with this similar desire for control. But this time it's control of their own kind of religious and cultural rules that causes them to miss their maker because they were only looking, they wanted someone to blame. Don't miss your maker because you only wanted someone to blame. Notice this, this line starting the, the second paragraph there. Now that day was the Sabbath. It's actually the end of verse 9, and it starts off this controversy with the Jewish leaders who apparently were out there policing the pools that day. So read with me verses 10 through 13. So the Jews said to this man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. 
It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now when John says the Jews, he's actually specifically talking about the Jewish religious leaders. But did you notice when we read how often they repeated that question over and over? They're on a chase. They want to find the person to blame for this crime. So Sabbath observance, kind of at this point in Jewish history, had become solidified into this kind of system of cultural rules. Sabbath was already written in the, in the law, in the Torah, what we have as the first five books of the Old Testament. But by Jesus' day, it had been so added to that carrying almost anything on the Sabbath was breaking a law. But now we have to realize that, that the law, the Torah, as it's written, is good. Listen to Dallas Willard, Christian author, philosopher. Listen to what he says. The law is one of the greatest gifts of grace that God has ever conveyed to the human race. It provides a picture of reality, of how things are with God and his creation. The prophets and the gospels share with the law this vital function of enabling human beings to know God, what God is doing, and what we are to do, wherein our true well-being lies. And Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So as Christians, we, we can read the law in light of Christ and see it for the gift of grace that it is. With its help and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can learn to live more and more obediently to what God calls his people to. So if you want to keep thinking about this, how to, how to read the law in the light of obeying Christ or how to read the prophets, or how to read the wisdom books, or, or the creation narrative, then look out. We're actually going to have a class coming up, how to read your Bible better. We're going to meet together over the course of five weeks, starting Tuesday night, April 5th. And it's going to be very discussion-based and group-based, and so you'll have lots of opportunities to meet. Meet people, meet other people at the church, um, meet the staff who are teaming up to facilitate it. Um, it's going to be really good. As Also, uh, my mentor, in seminary uh, helped me become a firm believer in food as a, firm, as, a, as a way of connecting to people. So I'm going to bring something to share with everyone the first night, so I hope you're there. Uh, and if you want to sign up, I hope you do. The events page on our website will kind of lead you where to sign up for that. Okay, so the law. The law is good, right? But it's possible to take a good thing and to twist it until it becomes a tool for our own self-advancement. Listen to Willard again. There's nothing in all the glory of the law according to the Old Testament that suggests for a moment that what the law does in a human heart is a human accomplishment. Rather, a benefit is ascribed to the law itself and to its giver. Viewed as something that we can or must achieve by somehow using the law on our own, the benefit of the law would be simply a loss. For in attempting to use it, 
we would have thrown ourselves back into the position of self-idolatry, utilizing the written law as our tool for managing ourselves and God. A tool for managing ourselves and God. This mistake is what led to the horrible degradation of the law at the time of Jesus and Paul, turning it from a pathway of grace to an instrument of cultural self-righteousness and human oppression. An instrument of cultural self-righteousness and human oppression. So this kind of culturally entrenched rule was practical. It was also really powerful. It gave the religious leaders even more ways to enforce the law. They were on the top. There was a lot of heat around this rule. There was a lot of shame and condemnation. And the religious leaders held the power of who was in the right, who was in the wrong. They decided who was to blame. They were so ready to persecute the person who had broken this rule that they missed the miracle entirely. They not only missed the miracle, but they missed the miracle maker. Their desire to be right and to judge, their desire to blame, made them miss the ultimate judge, the real healer, the son who is always working, just like his father is. So what culturally entrenched rules do we have, do I have, that might restrict people from seeing God in our midst? Who do we ostracize? Who do we tend to blame for not living up to our human-made standards? How might this be causing us to miss what God wants to do, to work through us to restore what is broken, rather than to blame someone for breaking a rule? So Jesus becomes this double suspect for this crime. He's once for healing the man and again for directing him to carry the bed, but the Jewish leaders all the time were blind to the reality that Jesus is not guilty of breaking the Sabbath at all. Jesus chooses this day, this moment, to reveal himself for a reason. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. The implications of this are staggering if we catch them. God the Father can't break the Sabbath. He is continually sustaining and upholding creation. Right? Therefore, Jesus claims he can work on the Sabbath too, since he's doing the Father's work. This is even more explicit in the passage we'll read next week, but for now, hear this. Jesus is your maker. The power that he has in our lives has bigger purposes than just to give us what we want or to meet our expectations or approve of the rules we have. We want to control how we're healed. We want to control who fits our expectations, who doesn't. We want to control how we act and how other people act. But what we need is for Jesus to rearrange our expectations, our understanding of his commands. We need him to show us how to follow him. So what Jesus does in this passage is is way more than just ruffle some religious feathers. He's not abolishing the Sabbath. Right? It's one of the central Jewish laws. Remember, he's actually fulfilling it. He's using it to reveal that rest is finally fulfilled in him. Listen to what theologian Norman Wurzba talks about Sabbath rest. Rest is not simply about stopping. When we stop from our work, what we are really doing 
is exhibiting a fundamental trust and faith in the goodness and praiseworthiness of God. Sabbath rest is thus a call to Sabbath trust, a call to visibly demonstrate in our daily living that we know ourselves to be upheld and maintained by the grace of God rather than the strength and craftiness of our own hands. To enjoy a Sabbath day, we must give up our desire for total control. A Sabbath-shaped way of life is one that recognizes that we don't have ultimate control over our lives, that God is at work even when we stop working. Living the Sabbath is this built-in rhythm to remember that it is God who holds the world in his hands, not me, not us. And this is what Jesus points to in this passage, and, and seemingly speaking blasphemy, he points directly at himself. In John's prologue, prologue right earlier in chapter 1, verse 11, we were told that Jesus, the word, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So in our passage, we see the maker of all creation, the giver of the law, and the king of Israel show himself to these religious leaders, and they miss him because they only wanted someone to blame. So in the verses that come after this, the healed man is going to come back and he's going to become a warning for us not to miss our Lord because we only wanted a cheerleader. So Jesus comes back onto the scene and he finds the healed man in the temple. Read with me verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus knows this man. He knows the sin that he carries beneath the surface, and he knows the story. There was apparently some connection, some string of consequences between what's happened to him and what he's done. What this does not mean is that disability is a result of someone's sins or mistakes. Suffering in this life may come from specific sins, but as we'll see later on, a while later on, John chapter 9, there's a parallel Sabbath healing, and Jesus forcefully denies that a specific sin was the cause of the broken body. So in our passage this week, Jesus knows the man. He knows the sin in his life, and then he takes the time to invite him back into wholeness, into full life healing by, by calling him out about his sin. And really, this is actually a second wave of mercy. So there's two acts of mercy in this passage. One, healing the man's body. And two, Jesus revealing himself as the restorer of broken creation. All of it. Our sinful hearts included. Jesus cared for this man. So he didn't leave him at the pool. Jesus loved this man so he wouldn't leave him with only a restored body, but an unhealed heart. No, Jesus wanted to heal all of him. Jesus isn't a quick fix. He's not about giving us an external makeover and making our lives easier or more comfortable or longer. Right? Jesus is Lord. Being healed, being whole, it, it begins with a life wholly submitted to Christ's lordship. Apparently, this man was not ready for this. He was okay with Jesus fixing his body, but when it came time for him to face the reality that he's a sinner, and that if he continues in sin, there will be consequences much worse 
than being paralyzed for 38 years. What does he do? He turned around and he reported Jesus. What he wanted was a cheerleader. Someone to to help him out, affirm his life choices, and then move on. And so he missed the fact that Jesus is his Lord. Remember, your healer, your maker, your Lord wants all of you. Don't miss him. These people miss Jesus. We see the consequences of this in, in verses 15 and 16. So after the man rats Jesus out to the authorities, from then on, they begin persecuting him for violating their rules. And so they missed out on what Jesus came to do, to make them whole, to restore them to their healer, their maker, and their Lord. So at the end of our passage, we come again to Jesus responding, the Father has been working until now, and I am working. There is nothing that we need more than for Jesus to work on our behalf. Whether we've been broken by our own sin or by someone else's sin against us, all of us are in need of this healing that only Jesus can provide. That can only come if we see that Jesus is doing the Father's work, that Jesus has worked for you and for me all the way to the cross, into the grave, up into heaven where he is reigning from there until now. Where do you need Jesus to be working right now? Where do you need Jesus to be working right now? Well, one first step could be Enaini, this thing we've been doing as a church, where we're praying for people in our lives who have not come to know Jesus as their Lord. We've been praying for nine people for 90 seconds for 90 days. So this is going to take us up to Easter. So we're getting close. Keep at it. Uh, So take 90 seconds. We're actually going to do that today to pray for those people in your life who might be in danger of missing Jesus. Or if you don't know Jesus or you're just reflecting about this sermon, pray for yourself along those same lines as you do that. So I'll count us 90 seconds and and then we'll um, come back and finish up. Starting now. So we think about responding. We can pray for those in our lives who we love, who might not know Jesus. But then what about a next step? How is God calling you to participate with him in his work in the world, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? 
Ask ourselves the questions, what's broken? And then secondly, how does the gospel show God's work to heal that brokenness? Once we reflect on those questions, we can start today to seek Jesus' healing that he, only he can give. So how can we do that? We can mend broken communication patterns in your marriage. Process the childhood trauma that you've been avoiding. Repair relationships with friends or coworkers or children or parents that have gotten off track. Confess, maybe. Confess a hidden sin with some trusted confidant. Or confess a human-made rule that you've enforced on others. Welcome a stranger. Reach across these culturally entrenched barriers, whether they're related to gender and sexuality or race or economics or politics. Eat with someone that you disagree with. Jesus' kingdom, his rule, has been inaugurated now in his death and resurrection. He is restoring us to wholeness, mind, heart, soul, and strength. This is why he came, he lived, he taught, he healed, he died, and he rose victoriously from the grave. Jesus is Lord, maker, and healer. He wants you, so don't miss him. Let's pray. Lord, God, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for your healing, your work in the world that um, we are desperately in need of. God, I, um, I know that when we are weak, then you are strong. God, help us to, to come before you confessing and knowing that you will meet us there. Meet us on the road like the father running for his son. God, you love us and you want to welcome us into your arms. So God, help us to receive your love today. And help us to continue worshiping. We love you, Lord, and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So one of the ways that we respond here at Christ Community every week is through communion. So if you're newer with us, how we do that is we're going to gather up in groups of five or six up here at the front here or there in the back, whichever one's closest to you. And there's going to be servers there with gluten-free crackers and juice. And the servers are going to lead us to partake in remembrance of Christ's work on the cross. If you have children, we, we leave it up to the parents to decide if they're ready to take communion. But you can also ask the, the servers, and they'll give them a blessing, because we want them to feel included. Now, you don't have to be a member of Christ's community or anything like that, so if this is your first Sunday, you're welcome to join us if you've placed your hope and your trust in Jesus. And we do this, as we do it, we proclaim together that Jesus has saved me from my sin and he is Lord of my life. This is the time every week where we put into practice the healing only Jesus can provide. When we quite literally eat together in one community with people who we are sure to disagree with. Right? That's what we declare in communion. Or you might be here with friends or family and you might think, well, church isn't really my thing and I don't really believe any of this, and, and that's okay. That's more than okay. We are so glad you're here, and if you want, you can use this time to just sit and pray and reflect on what you've heard. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. 
And we had given thanks, and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So come on up whenever the servers are ready. Let's continue worshiping together.